0: Today we're reading 1 Corinthians 6-9. through 9. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Of course, the church at Corinth was quite a troubled church, and one of their many problems was that they were taking each other to civil court. Paul addresses that in chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren?' But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Well, another of the many problems, as I mentioned at the Church of Corinth, is the fact that the members took one another to court by filing lawsuits. Paul calls for these disputes to be settled within the church by other believers who will serve as judges in such matters. Notice the terminology that Paul uses to identify those who have received Jesus Christ as Savior, as opposed to those who have not. He does so in verse 1 when he calls them unrighteous. The Greek word adikos means unrighteous or unjust. Versus the word saints, which is the Greek word hagios. That Greek word autokos is used 12 times in the New Testament and sometimes translated unjust, sometimes unrighteous. In reference to humans, it identifies those who have not been saved. In contrast, hagios identifies those who have been saved. In verse 7, Paul points out that the very fact that they are willing to take each other to court, well, that's a shortcoming of the fellowship of believers there. The scripture is clear here. Members within the same local assembly should never take one another to secular court over disputes. Let the local church settle these disputes. Now, there's a pattern established by Christ in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15-17 through 17, for settling these kinds of disputes. Let me read those three verses to you. Matthew 18:15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother." But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So it's clear that Christ intended for disputes among believers to be settled among believers. However, there are two aspects to this that are not clearly defined in Scripture. The first one is what to do with disputing believers in two different churches. Well, naturally, the preferred course would be to seek cooperation with the other church in resolving the issue, according to this passage in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15-17. through Now, if the other church refuses cooperation, the leadership of the first church really has no additional recourse in the matter. I just don't feel comfortable tying the hands of the offended church member in this matter. Since there's no clear scripture on this particular caveat, I'm most comfortable leaving the decision of recourse up to the individual believer without being critical of his actions, what he may or may not do. The second question people ask about church discipline is, what do you do when the church has ruled according to Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17 and the person is banished from the church for noncompliance? Well, there are two schools of thought here. Some say that verse 7 is the overriding principle here. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? However, I wouldn't find fault with the reasoning that once the fulfillment of Matthew eighteen seventeen is realized, which says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, I wouldn't find fault with the person after that, that the offended member would be free at that point to treat the banished member as though he were lost with regard to legal steps that he may want to pursue. As I said, I just don't find conclusive scripture either way on this issue. Now, perhaps Paul is writing this procedure with some provisions of the Mosaic law in mind, Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20, both declare that certain horrendous conduct within Israel was to be dealt with by banishing the offender from the people of Israel altogether. Whether Paul's declaration here was influenced by those passages or not, it's worth noting that God insisted that those offenses not be overlooked. It's quite obvious that Paul's emphasis is the public testimony of the body of Christ before the world in this passage. It does not speak well for believers within a local assembly if they cannot get along without taking one another before the unrighteous for judgment on property issues. Paul strengthens his argument with two passing references to believers' responsibilities of judging in the future. He talks about judging the world in verse 2 and judging angels in verse 3. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, he undoubtedly was thinking of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. That's where Jesus speaks to the disciples about their role in ruling during the millennium. Furthermore, Paul speaks of the event we commonly call the rapture in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. And that's where he says in verse 17, "and thus we shall always be with the Lord." So after the rapture, the white throne judgment takes place in Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15, along with the judgment of angels mentioned in 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and also Jude, verse 6. These angels will likely be judged at the same time as Satan in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. During those judgments, raptured believers will be with the Lord. It must be in that context that Paul is speaking here in verses 2 and 3. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, how about a listing of people who aren't going to heaven? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God." Well, Paul uses the same Greek word, adikos, in verse 9, unrighteous, as he used in verse 1 to describe those who have not received Jesus Christ as Savior. Those who are saved will inherit the kingdom of God, and those who are not saved, as it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a question that I often get asked, and that is this, can a practicing homosexual really be saved? Well, the answer is actually here in this passage, a passage that some folks find troubling. As a matter of fact, this is ammunition used by those people who are wrongly convinced that one can lose his salvation under certain circumstances. The principle here is quite clear. Believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they have the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 2, and that gives them direction. James four seventeen says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. All believers have direction from the Holy Spirit to respond positively toward God. So what happens when a Christian is negatively responsive toward God's leadership, when one actually rebels against the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Well, here's what we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It says, "...for whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and scourges every son whom He receives." If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. As Christians, God chastises us when we rebel against the knowledge of James 4.17 provided by the Holy Spirit's presence inside us. Now here's the extreme case. What about the believer who sets himself against God's will? Well, the answer to be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 through 32 is quite clear. God takes him out of this world if he doesn't turn from his rebellion. So, here's the evidence of Scripture. If a believer is practicing what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, God will take him out of this world to heaven, but out of this world nonetheless, if he chooses to continue in his rebellion Rather than respond to God. Now if he seems to be practicing this conduct without consequence from God's tasting hand, then the evidence points to the lack of a salvation experience in the first place, according to Hebrews 12:6 for whom the Lord loves he chastens. But under no circumstances are we to understand that a person loses his salvation if he missteps in the direction listed in verses 9 through 11 in this passage. The scripture is clear here and other places that a pattern of rebellious contact over time is the indicator. One more thing, many believers are bent on being able to identify the authenticity of another's salvation decision based upon conduct. Well, that's not necessary. Let's just let God keep the score. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 deals clearly with exactly how we should deal with others in this respect. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 says... But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Conduct that equates to rebellion against God by believers should not be judged per se, but rather identified according to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 subsequently that person should be shunned according to first corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 and that's so as to encourage that person to correct his actions therefore the bottom line on the issue is this when a professing believer openly rebels against the mandates of god treat that person like a non-believer and not as a believer and at the same time shame them for their conduct now that's scriptural treatment of the issue Paul describes the state of the believer in verse 11 when he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This threefold process of what has taken place to make a believer a believer was described as follows. A believer is washed, a believer is sanctified, and a believer is justified. Now, if you'd like more details on the underlying Greek words there, then look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading. Now, if you're curious about the issues of eternal life that have been raised here, then look at my article entitled, What the Bible Says About Eternal Life. You'll find that under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Now, because inquiring minds want to know, let's identify the conduct that's specified by Paul in verses 9 and 10 so that there's no confusion here. First, he uses the word fornicators, which, by the way, pornos is a Greek word that means a sexually immoral person, period. Then we have idolaters, and the Greek word is just like the English word sounds. It's transliterated from Greek. That's a person, of course, who worships idols. Now, it is curious that Paul links in Colossians chapter 3, 5 covetousness with idolatry. And then he mentions adulterers. The Greek word there is moikos, commonly used in the New Testament to describe sexual relations outside of one's marriage. Then we have a Greek word malakos, which is the word translated in the New King James Version here, homosexuals. That, by the way, is the passive male partner in a homosexual relationship. Then he uses the word in addition to homosexuals. He uses the word sodomites. Now that Greek word is arsenokoites, and that's differentiated from the previous word in as much as that's the active male partner in the homosexual relationship. Then we have thieves. The Greek word there is kleptes. Um, You may recognize that word. We get our English word kleptomaniac from that word. And then covetous. Uh, That's a greedy person whose objective in life is the acquisition of more wealth. And then drunkards, Greek Methusas, a person who habitually drinks too much. Revilers, one who engages in slandering. And extortioners, the Greek Harpox, it's one who carries off the possessions of another by force. Now, while we're on the issue of godly Christian living, let's talk about, as Paul does, how do you treat a temple? Verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Because he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul uses these nine verses to show that sexual immorality is just not compatible with Christian living. The Greek influence in Corinth reasoned that just as the body was made for food, so it was made to have an appetite for sexual fulfillment as well. That's the comparison discussed in verse 13 when Paul quotes their sinful Greek-based reasoning when he says foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. He goes on to say in that verse the following, Now the body is not for sexual immorality. In other words, sexual fulfillment is not a basic need, just as food is. You will recall that prostitution was a big trade in Corinth. Paul distinguishes our relationship to God as being different from the rest of the world with his phrase at the end of verse 13, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He continues that thought into verse 14 with the phrase, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. In other words, whatever the world does, we're different as believers. Finally, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a point that Paul makes and emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer at salvation, a fact of Scripture. Romans 8, 9 and 1 Corinthians 12:13 both subscribe to that. Since we as believers are God's dwelling place, how can anyone possibly suggest that it would be appropriate to unite oneself with a prostitute? Well, that's the question of verse 15. Well, only at Corinth. A fundamental principle is seen in verses 19 and 20 regarding our spiritual state as believers. And here it is. God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, just as he did the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. We carry God around with us. We are his dwelling place. Now, here's the question. To what kind of places are you going to carry God? These verses set the state for the discussion that continues in chapter 7 regarding sexual appetite. Paul expresses the complete unacceptability of a believer uniting with a prostitute in verse 15, where he alludes to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That verse in Genesis says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This one flesh understanding of marriage and thus the result of sexual relations, well, that was also referenced by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, and by Paul again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. In other words, sexual relations are completely appropriate within the context of marriage, but completely inappropriate outside of marriage. And that's the point of chapter 7. Then in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Paul deals with marital intimacy issues. Verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, in verse 1, the Greek word for touch is haptomai, which literally should always be translated touch. This touch here is a reference to sexual intimacy, as it is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, which has a different underlying Hebrew word, of course, but it's the Hebrew equivalent. It's just the discreet way of saying that uh, you shouldn't have sexual relations. It should be considered a translation error to translate verse 1 here as follows. Uh, As I've seen, it is good for men not to marry. While a popular translation has rendered it as such, the Greek word for Mary is gomeo, and it's not to be found anywhere in verse 1, nor is marriage to be understood there. However, Paul is promoting an unmarried life in this chapter based upon the present distress that he talks about in verse 26. In other words, the conditions within the Roman Empire for believers at the time of Paul's writing were becoming such that Paul was recommending a life unencumbered with the responsibilities associated with having a spouse. Undoubtedly, he has in mind the extreme persecution which existed against the believers at the hand of the Romans. Nero was the man. He was a very cruel Roman emperor who began to reign when he was 17 years old in 54 AD. 1 Corinthians was written around 57 AD. Nero's persecution of Christians is well documented. He put them to death for merely claiming to be Christians. Paul does then point out that once married, there is an intimacy protocol between husbands and wives that should be observed. In short, husbands and wives are to strive to satisfy the sexual appetites of their spouses so that there will be no temptation to resort to the unacceptable conduct of verses 12 through 20. Now if the comment that Paul made about fasting there piques your interest and you want to know more about that, then look at my notes on Matthew chapter 17 verses 14 through 21 where we give you some additional details on New Testament fasting. Well, how about a single life? Paul deals with that in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 7. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, the topic of verses 1 through 5 leads Paul to expand his comments on this issue of marriage. Paul extends his comments in verse 6 by saying this, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now, let's be clear about what is meant by that statement. Paul's differentiating between actual verbal commands of Christ, which serve as a precedent, of course, as opposed to issues of marriage that were never dealt with specifically by Christ in his earthly ministry. Paul's recommending a single life, a life like his own. He's pointing out that there's no command of Christ recommending a single life, though. But Paul considered the times critical. In verse 9, he advocates marriage for those who struggle to contain their sexual appetites as discussed in verses 1-5. through That's where he said, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I'm confident that burn with passion is meant there as rendered by the New King James Version, although that cannot be proved by the Greek construction of the sentence itself. I mention that because the King James Version simply ends that verse with the word burn, period. What about divorce? Well, let's look at verses 10 through 16 of chapter 7. Verse 10, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say... If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, verse 10 here contains the phrase, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Well, in differentiating from his statement in verse 6, Paul's pointing out that he's preparing to deal with an issue specifically addressed by Christ in his earthly ministry. Therefore, this is a precedent from Christ himself. What is that precedent? Well, here it is. The wife is not to leave her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried. Likewise, the husband should not put away his wife. Christ addressed this issue specifically in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Matthew chapter 19 Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 16, verse 18. That's why he lists it, by the way, as a command from the Lord. Yeah, but what if your husband or wife isn't saved? Well, Christ didn't specifically deal with this scenario. That's why Paul says in verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord. Well, here's what Paul says. If they'll stay, then keep them. You can still have a Christian home, in other words, sanctified, set apart to the Lord, If just one of the marriage partners is saved, we see that in verse 14. Moreover, your children will be the products of a Christian home. I think the principle here alludes to the household-wide adherence to Judaism in the Old Testament. Back then, if the head of a household was an observant Jew, so was everyone within the household. Here in verses 12-14, through Paul seems to be declaring that one saved parent, husband or wife, makes it a sanctified, hagiadzos, the Greek word used there to set apart, makes it a sanctified Christian household, thus resulting in the children who are going to also be holy or set apart. Since salvation is, by the way, an individual faith issue, this verse does not declare anyone saved by default. Verse 16 clarifies this. However, the unsaved spouse may choose to leave. Well, you can't tie them and make them stay in the marriage. Paul's releasing the abandoned spouse from the responsibility here in verse 15 when he says this, A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. What does that mean? Well, the Greek instruction for is not under bondage comes from the Greek verb doulao, which means to enslave. Now, the parsing of the word is third person, singular, perfect, passive, indicative. So literally translated, it should be like this. It would be, has not been enslaved. But everyone wants to know, does that mean the abandoned marriage partner can remarry? Well, that's where the discussion heads in the next few verses. He seems to be indicating in verses 17 to 24 to stay as you are. Verse 17. But as God has distributed each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was any one called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedom. Likewise, who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So here Paul once again addresses the situation of marriage within the context of the atrocities that surrounded them with regard to the Severe persecution of Christians from Nero's Roman government. Paul says that no one should divorce based upon these circumstances, but he seems to be recommending a single life, doesn't he? If one is currently in that state, he undoubtedly has in mind the mystery that he conducted while in prison, a ministry which, you have to admit, would have been hampered had there been a wife who needed care during his prison years. So he concludes this topic by saying in verse 24, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. To make this point, he uses a hot topic analogy, circumcision. It had been settled back at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that circumcision had nothing to do with salvation. However, it wasn't wrong for a Gentile to seek circumcision. In this context, however, he's showing that even circumcised Jews were not necessarily personally in favor with God in the Old Testament. Favor with God depended on their personal relationship with God. Likewise, married or unburied doesn't make one more or less favored before God. So, the next issue, to marry or not to marry, that's covered in chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. Verse 25, Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, That is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned, And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks that he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes, he does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So Paul's just been discussing the issue of remaining as you are with regard to marital status, and that's based upon the critical times in which they lived back then, probably referring to the great persecution of Christians at the hands of the Roman Empire under Nero. The exact meaning of verse 25 cannot be known precisely, Who are these virgins about whom Paul is speaking here? Since the biblical pattern up to that point was for a woman to leave her father's house and go to her husband's house at marriage, perhaps it's referring to all unmarried women. However, based upon the instructions of verses 34 to 38, perhaps verse 25 is specifically referring to those women who are betrothed to a man, a legal contract is what that was, without marital consummation, That was a betrothal. Perhaps Paul here is encouraging them to remain that way, betrothed without consummation. Paul does point out in verse 25, he says, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment. And here's what he's saying. This is a subject that was not dealt with specifically by Christ, but he's writing concerning the issue in light of the current persecution of believers. So, considering Paul's discussion over the last several verses leading up to this passage concerning the virtues of remaining single, inquiring minds want to know, is it a sin to marry? No, it's not a sin to marry. He hastens to point out that it is best for the unmarried to remain unmarried and that the married seek not to be loosed from their marriages. But if one does choose to marry, it's not a violation of Paul's counsel here. He just warns them that they acquire baggage when they do so in light of the current wave of Christian persecution, but it's not a sin. And now many have sought to isolate Paul's comments on marriage in this passage simply to the context of divorced persons remarrying. Well, this passage is much broader than that. Paul's discouraging all marriage for believers in the light of the persecution for which they were subjected under Nero. I'm distressed that some Christians teach that when divorced people remarry, that they're living in sin. How does the concept of living in sin even fit into our scriptural doctrine of salvation and forgiveness anyway? I mean, what is grace? That's a ridiculous teaching. Paul says in verse 27, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, the to be loosed of verse 27 is translated from one Greek noun. That Greek noun is lucis, and it's used only once in the New Testament. It means divorce in this context, although the word generally means release. The verb form, Greek luo, is used actually in the sentence that follows the second part of verse 27. In this Greek form, the second singular perfect passive indicative, Uh, Literally, the phrase should be understood as, you have been released. It's not conceivable that Paul was speaking of never-been-married people in verse 27 with that phrase, as some have asserted. That's important to understand because of the first phrase of verse 28, which says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Again, let me point out that it does a disservice to Scripture to teach that a person who marries after being abandoned by a spouse is sinning by doing so, or is living in sin. That just can't be derived from this passage of Scripture, not if you're going to be honest with it. In verses 29 to 35, Paul again explains the rationale for not taking on the burden of a spouse in light of the persecution that existed against Christians during this period in the Roman Empire. This admonition concerns all people, whether previously married or not, those people who lived during this great persecution. So who is this virgin in verse 36? Well, some have suggested that the reference to if any man thinks that he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, some think that he's talking about the father of an unmarried woman. I don't think so. That doesn't make sense without some massaging of the phraseology that's used here. To adhere to this point of view, one must creatively render the last phrase of that verse, let them marry. The Greek form is not passive, nor is the English, by the way, so it doesn't say anything about being given in marriage. That's an example, by the way, of a passive voice, as would be the case if it were talking about being given by a father. I think that this verse is probably addressing a couple who is betrothed to be married, but decides not to consummate the marriage in light of the critical situation of the persecution of believers. However, as time goes on and she reaches her prime, still unmarried and not eligible to marry someone else, well, because she's legally bound through betrothal, then let the man know that he is not violating Paul's counsel to go ahead and consummate the marriage relationship with his betrothed. That position makes sense, given the specific wording in this passage. Now, if you want to know more about the scriptural stipulations regarding betrothal and marriage, then look at my notes on Deuteronomy chapter 22. So, in summary, I think it's clear that 1 Corinthians 7 was written in light of a critical set of circumstances. My wife Evelyn was particularly moved by the autobiography of Gracia Burnham. She and her husband, Martin, served in the Philippines with the New Tribes' mission until they were captured by Muslims and held for ransom for an extended period of time. He was shot and killed as the Philippine army attempted to rescue them on June 7, 2002. Throughout their captivity, Martin had numerous opportunities to escape, but he didn't feel comfortable doing so for fear of his wife's safety. I think this serves as a small example of what Paul is discussing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul uses himself as an example in this chapter. He did not seem to mind being in prison for those years. However, had there been a wife needing provision at home, well, he'd been under some pressure to provide for her, wouldn't he? Paul seems to be simply suggesting in this passage the efficiency of an unencumbered single life. that, of course, being in light of the times of persecution that they were experiencing. We move to another topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that of idols, verse 1. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other god but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you Who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Well, Paul starts a discussion here that he actually doesn't finish until he gets to the end of chapter 10. So we'll start the discussion here, but we'll have to wait to tie up the loose ends in the notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14-33 through 33, that we'll do in about four days. The issue here, per se, is eating meat offered to idols. Now, you may recall that this is not a new issue to the early believers. It was dealt with at the Jerusalem Council that was convened back by James in Acts chapter 15, and that was eight or so years before the writing of 1 Corinthians here, maybe 49 A.D. or so. And so, um, obviously, their decree from that council in Acts 15:29 didn't really settle the issue. That decree was designed to appease the Jewish believers without imposing the Mosaic Law on new Gentile believers. In other words, it was a compromise back then, and it was designed to help observant Jewish and Gentile believers with differing cultural experiences, and it was to help them live in harmony. Corinth is hundreds of miles from communities dominated by Jewish practices, and the issue is being dealt with from a different perspective here. Simply stated, here's that perspective. Is it a sin in itself per se for a believer to eat meat that has been offered in sacrifice to an idol? By the way, you'll notice in Acts chapter 15 that the discussion there was not centered around whether it was sin or not, but rather whether or not it was good, and we see that wording exactly in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, whether it was good to observe those restrictions in light of the existing conflict among Jewish and non-Jewish believers. And as a matter of fact, the letter that was authored as a reply back then that was concluded in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, it ended with the statement, If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. There was no statement of absolute sin attached with the practice. So here's Paul's decree on this issue. The practice of eating that meat offered in sacrifice to an idol is not a sin in itself, but some believers earnestly believe that it's wrong anyway. He emphasizes that it's inappropriate to evaluate one spiritual condition based upon just one standard of practice. When he says in verse 3, "...that if anyone loves God, this one is known by him." And what about all of those temple gods to whom the meat was offered? Well, there's his answer in verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through him we live. In other words, those idols, they ain't nothing. Paul tells those believers who have a clear perspective in recognizing that there is no sin involved here to be considerate of the less mature believers who are offended at the practice. In Romans chapter 14, Paul refers to these less mature brethren as weak brethren, an implication of being weak in the faith or weak in their understanding of the scriptural principles. He warns mature believers to be conscious of the weak believers here in verse 9. And he says this, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul, therefore, says in verse 13 the following, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, here's an important principle for mature believers. Mature believers take great care in not letting their liberty in Christ have a negative impact on their testimony. That careful and reserved conduct by Christians should extend to all controversial issues of Christian living. If you liked like the rest of the discussion on this particular issue, then look at my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 33. We'll look at those in four days, but you may want to read ahead. Chapter 9 interrupts that discussion on idols to talk about Paul's apostleship. Verse 1, "'Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord?' If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense— Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, And he who thrashes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with the stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Well, in this chapter, Paul defends his apostleship. The Greek word for apostle is apostolos. This is the general word used in that day for a messenger. So an apostle of Christ, of course, is a messenger of Christ. An apostle of God is a messenger of God. The word in the New Testament came to be a description of those original 12 who were called by Christ in the Gospels. However, Paul points out in verse 1 that he saw Christ on the road to Damascus and visited heaven and described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1-10. through 10. In other words, while he was not called like Peter, John, and the others during the earthly ministry of Christ... He was nonetheless called on the road to Damascus, just as they were. One problem, though, Peter had already appointed a 12th apostle in Acts chapter 1. Incidentally, you'll notice in the study of Acts chapter 1 that there really only is a scriptural provision for 12 apostles, not 13. And Paul definitely claims that 12th spot right here in this passage. The issue in this chapter is really... Why should these Corinthians pay any attention to Paul's words to them? Since the church was quite divided, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3, there were those in the church there whom Paul anticipated would not be receptive to his harsh words concerning their wayward conduct. So Paul uses several verses in this chapter, verses 3 through 14, to point out that a gospel minister is properly financially supported by those to whom he ministers. In verse 9, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, to validate that even the ox had a right to the nourishment of the corn while he was plowing. Likewise, a minister is deserving of the financial fruits of those to whom he's ministering spiritually. Moreover, the temple priests are sustained by the sacrifices made by the people. We see that in verse 13. He caps off this discussion with verse 14, which says, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Now that being stated, Paul then concedes that even though it would be proper for the Corinthians to lend to his financial support, that he nevertheless has declined to take their support. It appears that his reasoning here was a desire to refrain from receiving support from a church having so many problems with carnality. In verses 16 and 17, he points out that necessity is laid upon him by God to preach and minister. He doesn't do it for a paycheck. In verse 18, he emphasizes that this strategy gives him liberty to speak uncompromisingly. Now, let's continue reading with verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews." To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And every one who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Well, in verses 19 to 27, the verses we just read, Paul explains the limitations that he's placed upon himself for the sake of the gospel, and he's determined to live his life for the benefit of others. He blended into the community to which he was ministering in order to gain their respect. That is what he conveys in verses 19 to 23, Jews in verse 20, Gentiles, people without law in verse 21, and weak Christians, those people we talked about in chapter 8. He talks about them here in verse 22. In verses 24 through 27, Paul compares ministering for Christ to an athletic competition. Winners endure hardships and training to attain excellence for victory. That's the way Paul viewed his ministry. He encourages the Corinthians to catch that vision of ministry also when he says in verse 24 run in such a way that you may obtain it. After all, it is a battle according to his words in Ephesians 6:12 when he said for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In fact, it's not just a battle of personal satisfaction but it's a battle for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls. Paul understood that to win this battle meant focusing on the objective when he says in verses 26 and 27, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified.